Hello, friends. Welcome to the Premature Bible Institute. I'm Doug Scheibel, your free-range podcaster, just welcoming you again to this next lesson. Uh, it's just been exciting. I'm really uh, pumped about getting into this part of uh, of the redemptive story, uh, starting into the life of uh, the Lord Jesus. And so it's really exciting, some of the things uh, that are coming up. Now, this lesson is going to be a little bit longer than usual, probably, because there's just important information, and it does. I don't think it can be uh, sectioned up the way uh, I could normally do in other things, so we just need to talk a little bit about this. So, starting with that, uh, throughout history, uh, there have always been people who have claimed to be deliverers or uh, saviors of some sort, always promising people all kinds of things. Uh, even in our day and age, there are people still doing that. Uh, when I was uh, first went to Bible school, it was the year after Jim Jones and his cult uh, of, of people. 900 people committed suicide down in uh, Guyana uh, right there in, I think, 1978. And it's just cultish, the whole idea. And when man wants to follow other men, those other men want to lead them. But they want to lead them in a way that they think is best for them. And it's always this idea of, of somebody saying, I know what's best for you. Uh, so follow me. And God is always saying, I do know what's best for you. I created you. I made you. I uh, not only own you, but I don't want you to do things because you don't want to. I want you to do it because you do. And so God provides ways for us to come to him and recognize that he really does know best in every situation, and we can rest in that. So uh, um, God is now deciding to show the world what a Savior really looks like. And so he's sending this person and uh, uh, in the form of a child uh, who was born to a virgin. Now, he didn't send this uh, child with pomp and circumstance. He didn't send him and put him on a throne, give him royal garb or anything like that. Uh, he didn't do it with great fanfare or anything, did he? Uh, he didn't announce to the whole earth that this was happening other than what he had said in scriptures and through prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets never said they were the saviors. They said one was coming. Uh, they, they didn't even say that they knew who he was or, or when he would come. It's just that, that one day they would come because God promised that he would. Now, sometimes we wonder why God does things the way he does. Uh, but that's the part of learning to trust him is you don't have to know why God does everything except in this way. He will never do anything that violates who he is. So if you understand who he is, then you can, by nature, uh, trust him to do things right and do them well. Uh, he has a purpose uh, for everything he does, and he'll reveal them in the proper time. So that being said, let's review a little bit about the last lesson. So we learned that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the place that was spoken in uh, in Malachi and uh, places in the Old Testament where the Savior would be born, the Deliverer uh, be, uh, of the uh, of the uh, tribe of of. Uh, Judah, and it would also be in the lineage of David. And so uh, uh, we know that he was born, and he was born in a place called Bethlehem. And there were people that came to visit him. There were, although we didn't talk about it in the last lesson about the shepherds in the field coming to worship, they did also. They had heard an angel, angelic host, or an angelic group of um, angels that came and they they proclaimed who this person was, and they came to worship him. And, uh, and there were wise men, three wise men from the east that came to worship him. And uh, they knew something that evidently other people didn't. So Herod wanted to know who these uh, wise men were actually looking for, if you remember right. 
And so he says, when you find out, tell me where he's at and when you find him, and then I will come and worship him myself. Well, the wise men weren't waiting for somebody else to tell them who this person was. They wanted to go see him himself. And that tells you the difference between the wise men and um, uh, Herod, which is pretty interesting. Now, some of the people at the time of Jesus' birth, they got it. And they uh, they understood who he was. That was Mary. That was Joseph. Uh, Zacharias, Elizabeth. And Zacharias and Elizabeth were the um, uh, parents of John, uh, who would be John the Baptist. And there was another couple that we didn't talk about either called Simeon and uh, Anna. And they were two older people who uh, had been waiting for this deliverer. And the deliverer shows up. And uh, go back in Scripture and read those particular passages. And I think you'll be really, really thrilled at what they had to say and how excited they were that the day had finally come. And just like Simeon and Zechariah, I mean, sorry, uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias and, of course, Mary and Joseph, they were thrilled. And uh, so anyway, um, they understood this, but some did not. Some didn't understand. And let's talk about them just for a little bit, okay? One was Herod. Herod was the king uh, in Israel. He was uh, put in, in charge over there by the Roman uh, uh, authority. Herod said he wanted, or Herod said he wanted to worship uh, Jesus, but he was lying. He wasn't telling the truth. He didn't really want that. He just wanted to know where this promised deliverer was going to be. And so once he found out, he was going to do something, wasn't he? He wanted to know who any supposed contenders to him were. He didn't. He was the king, and he didn't want anybody taking his place, and so he wanted to know where this supposed king was, uh, this deliverer, um, and he sent wise men on their way to report where the deliverer was, and they were going to return to him and report, like I said just a minute ago. So, did God know where Jesus was? Well, of course, He's the one that told Mary and Joseph uh, about this whole situation. So, of course, He knew where. Uh, Jesus was. Did God know what Herod was thinking? Of course. God knows everything. There isn't anything you can teach God or explain to him. He understands. He knows motives. He knows reasons. He knows all. And so he knew what uh, Herod was thinking. Uh, Was God going to let Herod control the situation? Well, of course not. God never lets anybody control the situation. Now, what I'm talking about here is that he wasn't making Herod not want Christ or Jesus, what he was wanting Herod to do was to do the same thing everybody else was, is to come and worship the king. But Herod wanted no part of that. So, But God wasn't going to let Herod control the situation, what was going on. God had a plan, and nobody can um, work against that plan if God wants it to be fulfilled. If God wanted me to, uh, um, you know, go to Timbuktu, there's nobody that could stop that. I could go, and I would head off that way. I may not know exactly when he get wanted me there, but if he told me he wanted me there, then that would be the end of the matter. I would be there. <coughs> but I think he'd want me to do this in a way that says, okay, Lord, you know what's best for me. I'm going to head that direction, and then I'll leave all the, the plans and directions and all the different things up to you about how I get there. Just knowing that he wants me there is enough for me. Uh, and so I work towards that end. Not that I'm trying to work out my own work. I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. So uh, throughout history, has anyone been able to disrupt God's plans? 
especially about the coming deliverer. I mean, I think we see that throughout Scripture. We saw where Satan tried to do it with Adam and Eve. Uh, We see that with Cain and Abel. Uh, We see that with the people in the time of Noah. Satan, throughout history, is always trying to thwart God's plans, but it never works. It never works. Why? Because God is God and everybody else isn't. And so he is going to work out his plan as he sees fit. But he always wants to use us in a way. uh, You know what? This is something I think people get confused about. If I disobey God, he's going to work out his plan. But if I obey God, he's also going to work out his plan. It really doesn't make any difference which um, decision I make. He's going to work that plan out because that's that's what he wants, and he is God. So he will do it. I just want to go along with him and find out what it is that he wants to do. I know, let me give you an example. I know that he wants those from every tribe and language and nation and peoples and whatever to come to him. He wants us to, uh, he, they, he wants us to know about him from every, all of those groups. And there will be people from every one of those groups um, represented in heaven at the end. Now, uh, I don't know who all is going to be, and it may not, I don't know, may on an individual basis, but I know those from every one of those groups are going to be reached. And so I can't uh, beat that. God's going to do it. I just want to be a part of reaching those people. And so, Lord, what do you want me to do? So throughout history, God has said what he wanted to do, and he's going to accomplish it. So what did God do? Let's start reading here. Matthew 2.12. And he's talking to uh, he's talking about um, the wise men. It says, "Then being divinely warned, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed their own con- uh, for their own country another way. So, in other words, the wise men, after they had seen uh, this deliverer, uh, and they were probably going to go back to Herod and tell him where he was at." But they were warned in a dream. He says, don't go back to Herod. You go back to your own countries another route, using another way. Don't bother with Herod. All right? So who was God warning? He was warning the wise men. Did God send them back to Herod with, with for a report or with a report? Of course not. He sent them back to their own countries to another, another route. Now, let me ask you this. Was Herod satisfied with this situation now? Well, let's just read. Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until uh, until, um, I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, talking about Joseph, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now we read that scripture once before. So in the Old Testament, God is saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. It doesn't say he was born in Egypt. He said he would call him out of Egypt. And so God, you can't be called out of a country if you're not there already. So God sends his son and the family off to Egypt to uh, await there until they get further instructions from God. God knew what Herod was going to do, and God knew the best method of escape for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. So they followed God's directions, and they fled to Egypt like God told them to. Uh, and why did they need to flee the country? What was it that they were really 
trying to avoid or uh, escaping from? Well, let's read here in verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise man, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts. So not just Bethlehem, but in the whole district. Uh, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So in other words, in the Old Testament, there was this prophecy that there was going to be great mourning and weeping because of children dying in this very place. So Herod was upset because he had been disrespected by the wise men. And there's probably a lot of shame in that issue, but that's probably not all of it. He wanted to get rid of this person who was supposed to be this king. So he lashed out. He killed children, not because the wise men disrespected him, because it was his plan from the very beginning. When he sent the wise men off into Egypt, I'm sorry, into Egypt, into uh, to Bethlehem to find out where they, uh, he was at, his purpose was that he was going to wipe these people out, these young kids. So, uh, and that's what he was going to do. Now, Herod had just wanted to know when the star, well, I'm sorry, Herod had wanted to know when the star appeared so he could figure out how old Jesus would be. All right? So when the wise men went to Jesus, not unlike the uh, manger scenes that we see at Christmas time, where they show this baby Jesus and the, the shepherds and the wise men there, the wise men weren't there. They were uh, they came later, and so they were probably and it says here from two years old and under. So Herod was making sure that anybody two years old and younger, all the male children were going to be wiped out. That's what he was going to do. And boy, this is really like a picture with Moses, isn't it? Where God, uh, where Herod was going to wipe out the male children uh, from, uh, from young, <coughs> young children on. So he's wiping out all these children because that's when they figured out that the star appeared. Therefore, the significance of that star was when it appeared, they knew that the birth had taken place. And so they were going to just wipe out all those kids because Herod did not want any... Um, Competition. Let's put it that way. All right. So he killed all the young children in Bethlehem, were two years old and younger. And like I said, it kind of reminds us of Moses, doesn't it? But let me ask you: Like Moses, is God able to uh, care for those that are under His care and to watch out for them? Those that are under care, um, God is able to protect them, isn't He? Now, Satan wanted to destroy the deliverer of Israel at that time, which was Moses. Uh, but now he wants to destroy the deliverer of mankind, not just Israel, but all of mankind. He wants to destroy him. So do you think Satan's going to be able to do this? Do you think Satan is going to be able to uh, wipe it out? And does he think he's going to win again? This is his last opportunity because he knows who's coming. He knows who this person really is. Remember he said in the beginning, I will be like the Most High. And so now he's got this helpless little baby, and I think he figures out that's how he can deal with this situation. Well, Satan still hates God and that which God has created in his image. And, of course, we know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God because he is God in the flesh, God the Son, as we called him earlier. Now, remember, Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as it isn't God. 
And so that's something you need to be really cautious about when you're hearing stories. Even when I'm telling you something, don't believe me just because I say it. Go back and read Matthew and Luke in the early stages of those uh, of his life there, where it talks about the beginning of Jesus coming upon the earth and becoming a human. Uh, that's what you want to go by, not by my word, but by that. That's God's word. So, um, um, so this has all happened. They flee to Egypt and they're there for a time. And so. Uh, after a while, something else happened. So let's read this in Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. But when Herod was dead, now see, Herod, Herod finally died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So Joseph is in Egypt, angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says this, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. So God made sure nobody could come back on him. And so he sends him back now. He says, go back to Israel. All those who sought to kill you were, or your child, they're dead. So they're not going to bother you anymore. Then he arose, talking about Joseph, took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus uh, was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So in other words, Joseph goes back to Israel, and in the region where he was at, he learned that uh, Herod's son was uh, in leading. And he was kind of afraid that, boy, if he found out, he would want to get revenge on uh, his son, on the Lord Jesus also. So he was kind of afraid about that. And so here's what the Lord decided uh, to do there. He was afraid to go there. And being war warned by God in a dream, once again, he turned aside to the into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city of Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, it's really interesting because we don't really find in what we see really definitive evidence that he would be called a Nazarene. But if it says it right here, then evidently uh, the prophets did say that. And we just, um, maybe there's something we don't know that is implied in something else that's written that if you were a person of that uh, of the Jewish race, you might understand that. But guys like me don't because I'm not part of that. But that's okay. Uh, he, they went to Nazareth, and that's where they lived, and they dwelt. So God communicated to Joseph by uh, an angel in a dream when they should return to Israel. So he, the angel talked to him. Now Herod and those who saw Jesus' life, like I said, were now dead. Herod's son is reigning in his place. God sends him, sends him to Nazareth, Nazareth and then another prophecy of God was fulfilled also. And it's Hosea 11, chapter 1. Uh, I'm sorry. It was the one about him being a Nazarene. Now, also in Hosea 11, verse 1, and I won't go into all of it, uh, but it says this, uh, that he would be brought out of Egypt. Okay? And now we see in Matthew 2, 14 through 15, that's exactly what happened. He came out of Egypt. So that prophecy in Hosea 11, 1 are now fulfilled. Now, we've already fulfilled several actual s scriptures, but we've only listed four of them so far. Isaiah 9-7, Isaiah 7-14, Micah 5-2, and Hosea 11-1. And so those prophecies have already been fulfilled. So now you got four, and it starts narrowing down who could possibly be this one. But the time is going, and it's continuing on, and uh, and the Lord Jesus now has been uh, born uh, he went to Egypt, they came back to Nazareth, and now they're living there, 
and he's growing, and he's maturing, and becoming a child. And Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says this, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So Jesus was like other children, except one way. He was born without sin. Uh, So can you imagine a kid who's never a problem? He always does what his father in heaven wants him to do. I mean, if you were one of his brothers or sisters, that would probably be a little bit difficult sometimes. Can you imagine Mary or Joseph? Somebody said, boy, I wish you'd be like Jesus. Well, nobody could, you know, it'd be like that. That's probably not what they said. They probably had more, I'm sure they had more respect for him than that. But just the idea of here's a, a perfect person living with you, always doing the right things, always doing their chores, learning what they needed to learn. Uh, and how much he was like the other kids as far as playing and doing things, I don't know. But whatever it was, he knew what he was going to be doing. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, He was born without sin. Now, Adam's nature was not passed on to him. So he didn't receive the sin nature like you and I do. Remember, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. So that uh, was not passed on to him. Um, We know that all have sinned and all have disobeyed God except him not Jesus. He never dishonored his father in any capacity, no matter what it was. His father in heaven was always honored by what his son did for him. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, Jesus is eternal, just as his father was. Uh, He has all the attributes his father has, and he only had a beginning in the physical sense. In other words, he was always there with God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Throughout all eternity, they dwelt together in perfect unity. But now he comes in the form of a human, in the form of a person, a living, breathing human being with weaknesses in the sense of uh, they could be tempted, he could have um, injuries or whatever, you know, I mean, I could have, I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying he had all those things he could feel, see, hear, taste, touch, and feel, uh, just like you and I. So that's what he was like. He had all the bad attributes of his father, uh, but he only had a beginning in the physical sense, not in, in the eternal sense. So he became human. Why? To identify with humanity and its trials, its temptations, but he would do so without dishonoring his father in heaven. And so he had, even though those trials and temptations were there, he always acted in it in a way that is in accordance with what his father wanted him to do. So he wasn't limited in his capacity as God. He was only limited in the sense that he submitted himself to his father in every sense. So he could have done anything he'd wanted to, but he didn't. He chose not to put aside his attributes, but to submit his attributes to who his father was and let his father direct his life rather than he making choices himself. So Jesus grows, he, he gets uh, older and he gets uh, smarter, he learns, his father Joseph teaches him, you know, his stepfather. And so all of these things are going on, but then there comes an event, and we want to talk about this here in Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 41 through 45. It says, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. 
But supposing him to to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. So Joseph, (laughs) even though Joseph was not Jesus' father in the technical sense, he was his mentor, his protector. He was everything a father would and could be uh, as a human. Uh, but with the frailties of a man and frailties of, of every, any father that we all have, uh, the sorrows and the um, pains that we have when things happen to our children. So he wasn't like God the Father in that sense where he knows all and sees all and can do all. He was limited also, but he taught him well and he cared for him. Now Joseph cared for him as though he was his own firstborn son. That's what he did. Man, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the Passover. I just started getting a little emotional here, just thinking of what it would have been to be the one with the responsibility to train the Lord of the universe to be a human. And so that's what uh, Joseph did, and Mary as his mother also did the same, showed him all the things that a mother would go through, and so we know that Jesus, as we see later on in Scripture, had brothers and sisters. And so to see them fail and the anguish it probably brought to the parents, I'm not saying they necessarily all fail. We just don't know that much information about the brothers and sisters. But we do know that they were, they were human. They were flawed. They were sinners like everybody else, but not Jesus. So Jesus watched his parents and learned how to hurt like they hurt. So um, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the Passover. And when the Passover was finished, they traveled back to Nazareth, assuming that Jesus was with him. You know, I can remember growing up as a little kid, uh, I'd get on my bicycle. I mean, the sunlight come up, bang, I was on my bicycle, and I'd fly. I lived in a little town, about 7,000 people, Augusta, Kansas. And I'd travel everywhere. I would be going all day, full blast, just running, just doing everything I wanted to do. I really had a good life in that way. And so I could go, and my parents never had to worry about me. They didn't worry about some pervert trying to pick me up and take me off and molest me or anything like that. He never, they never worried about that. They were very, it was a tight-knit community. Everybody knew who everybody was. So they knew when we were doing things we shouldn't be doing. They also knew when other people were doing things they shouldn't be doing. And so it was kind of like that. So we didn't have to do that. My mom used to be so aggravated because uh, it, didn't make any <laughs> it didn't make any difference. But whenever she would set food down on the table in the evening, I would pull up and there I'd come walking in the front door. And she just, man, I could still see her almost swearing in German. And she'd say, what in the world? How do you always do this? You know exactly when it's time to eat, and you pull right in, and it just frustrated her no end. Not because she didn't want me to eat. It's just It just amazed her that I just had this sense about when food was coming on the table. But that's the way it was. Well, in a sense, you think of Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus going to Jerusalem, and now the feast of Passover is over, and they're heading off. And, you know, there's all these kids and children and relatives and cousins all getting together, and they're all traveling together to protect each other from bandits or whatever. And so they're all, you know, <coughs> excuse me, they're all working together, um, uh, just doing everything. And then after a day, they didn't see Jesus at all, which evidently must not have been normal for them. 
because Jesus would be the kind that would check in with them. And so they couldn't find him, and they started checking him around about him and found out that nobody had seen him. And so then they decided to go back to, uh, back to Jerusalem. Uh, though he wasn't with them, he normally would have been with friends and relatives where, uh, where his parents could find him. That, you know, it's just like when, my, when we get, uh, our kids don't come home, we start calling parents to see has our daughter or our son been there, you know, that type of a thing. All right? They couldn't find him everywhere, so they went back to Jerusalem to find him. So where did they find him? It's really neat. So we go to chapter 2 again, verses 46 and 47. Now, so it was that after three days, so they were looking for him for three days, mind you, all right? After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. I just love that. I just love it. Because here's this young child uh, expounding to them in ways and asking questions that are very mature. And the guys were just surprised at what they were hearing. Let me tell you something. Sometimes children ask the most profound questions and say the most profound things, and you just sit back and just shake your head and say, wow, Lord, that was something. We've seen this out in the tribe where kids get the answers uh, before the parents do. When they hear a story, they make they understand conclusions, and they, they uh, just figure this stuff out. Uh, this stuff out, and so they were amazed that a 12-year-old understood what they were talking about. So I want to give you some examples. There was a young girl, and some of you may have heard me uh, use this illustration before, but it's so profound. In talking about the omnipresence of God, that He's everywhere, she says it like this. She says, God is so big that He doesn't have to go anywhere. And I thought, holy mackerel, there are people that write huge volumes on that stuff, and treatises on the omnipresence of God. And this girl, in one statement, sums the whole thing up. You could throw away everything, and if you believe that, you would understand it completely. God is so big that he doesn't have to go anywhere. And it's true. He doesn't have to go anywhere. He's already there. So, and um, I was at a camp, and I was teaching 12-year-old kids, or I'm sorry, 10-year-old kids, and I was talking about... um, um, you know, going through the days of creation, and I got to day three, talked about the creation of the vegetation and all that stuff. And after class, this kid comes up to me and says, you know, I never saw that before. It's a 10-year-old kid telling me this. I never saw that before. I said, what's that? He says, I always knew that plants needed water and air and light and dirt to exist. But I never saw how God created all of those first before he created the plants. I'm sitting there thinking, wow, that's really good. Well, I says, well, what does that tell you about God? He says, you know, God is an orderly God, isn't he? And I thought, oh, man, that is really profound. God does things decently and in order. And so that was what he got from it. And I just thought how profound that was. A young kid. I remember also my nephew. I was teaching him the Bible as you're being taught in here. And, (coughs) excuse me, just a second kind of a dry throat. Um, my nephew and I were going through the days of creation, and we get to day number seven. God rests from his work. His work is finished. And I talked about how he wasn't tired or anything like that. It's just there was no more that he was going to create, and he rested and he enjoyed. It was his work. It was his creation. All it was done. People, animals, the stars, the universe, all of it. It was all done. 
and he rests on the seventh day. And my little nephew, at that time he was a young kid, he's, he's older now, he's a, a grown-up adult, but he said something, I thought, oh man, this is good. And you know what he said to me? He says, you know, he says, when God finishes something, there's really nothing left to do, is there? And I thought, oh my goodness. And I sat there and I took that statement, I wrote it down right away, and I put it in a, another lesson in the book, and you'll get to it one uh, sometime, but I'll show you where that hit. And uh, I just thought how profound that was. When God finishes something, there's nothing left to do. So very profound. Now, Jesus studied God's Word just like all the other children did, and he was understanding those things. He wanted to know from a human perspective, as a human, what God wants us to know. Now, even though he is God and can know everything, remember I said he submitted his attributes to God, didn't give them up. He just put them under God's authority to use as God saw fit. And so now he's reading God's Word, and he's learning about his Father in heaven from the Word that was written by him. And so, anyway, that's what's really neat. So in verses 48 through 50, it says this, um, talking about Mary and Joseph finding Jesus. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Do you not know I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. So he was saying something very, very profound to them. I must be about my father's business. Okay? And so, once again, he submitted himself to his father. And we'll see here in just a second. Uh, like all parents, Joseph and Mary worried about their son. You know, they were worried that he was lost or confused or who knows what they, they actually thought. Maybe not confused. That's not the right word. But they were, they were just concerned about him, as any parent would be. But like the Son of God, Jesus reminded them who his father was, all right, and his purpose for coming into the world. I must be about my father's business, all right? Joseph and Mary may not have understood all the significance of his coming, but they would, all right? So they submitted themselves to God also. And it's interesting uh, what, what happened, what it says right after this in verse 51. I want you to, read, to hear this. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. In other words, she pondered, she considered, she evaluated what he was saying. So they came down, and what did he, the, um, Jesus do? He didn't say, hey, listen, I have a Father in heaven that's more authoritative than you guys are. No, he didn't, did he? He said, I sub he submitted himself to them. He put himself in subject to his parents, his earthly parents. Why? Because this is what his father would want him to do. He submitted himself to his father by submitting to his parents on earth and they and learn from them. But Mary didn't uh, didn't just forget this. She's kept this in her heart and says, okay, something's going on here. I may not understand it, but maybe I will one of these days. And so that's what was going on. I just think that's really, really neat. All of this, uh, after this reminder of who he was, Jesus went back to Nazareth with his parents and lived in a way that honored them. Okay, he honored his parents by what he did. Mary, see, that's fulfilling that commandment, isn't it? When it says, honor your father and your mother, it wasn't just a matter of being obedient to them, but to live in such a way that it brought respect to his parents and brought honor 
to them. Wow, uh, that's their son. Jesus is Joseph and Mary's son. And they were people would be impressed. Mary knew that she didn't understand all that he meant, but that one day she might, and so she thought about events like this. And there were probably a lot of other ones too. She knew that there was a purpose for what the Lord Jesus did at that point. She just didn't know for sure what it was, but she knew that one day she probably would. So Jesus continues to grow. It says in Luke 2.52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So Jesus was the perfect person, and he was the perfect friend. He was the perfect representative of God to men. He'd be the perfect representative of men to God. And so uh, that's pretty neat. Now, in Isaiah 11.2, we also learn of some of the uh, deliverer's characteristics, and, uh, and it's kind of revealed again in Luke 2.52. So let's read one here. In Isaiah 11.2, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's what he did. That He personified that. And that's what was neat about him. I just love this. I just, I just want to cry, just whew, thinking about him and what he did for us and how he came and became part of our race, if you want to put it that way, so that he could redeem us. So anyway, there's a lot that's going to be going on. Now, Jesus continued to fill what God said about the deliverer, all right? He fits the description of the one whom God promised to send. And that's pretty neat, isn't it? So conclusion, the deliverer is growing up. He's starting to get older. He's getting ready. He's getting ready to come on the general scene. Right now, it's kind of specific where he's at. He's not generally known or anything like that, but he's getting ready to be. He is becoming the person that God, his father, wants him to be. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he started out as something less than what he was. I'm just saying he's becoming that which God wants him to be. His life was not complete yet. There were things that he had to learn. There were things that he had to experience in order to be that perfect person that, well, we'll talk about that later. But he had to, there was more that he had to learn. It wasn't that he was less than he ever was. It's just that there was not a completeness to all the things that God, his father, wanted him to learn. Does that make sense? Uh, just think about it. Like I said, it's not making him less, and he's becoming more in the sense of he's less than God. Now he's going to be more than God later on. He's still God, but he's learning. And he's learning things that are going to make him the perfect deliverer. All right? So what will happen next? What's going to be the next thing that comes on the scene? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next week. So just want to say this. Um, remember, if you want to listen to these podcasts and if you want others to listen to it, please Go on, just look up my name on on uh, on your favorite podcast. Just look up Doug Scheibel, S-C-A-D-O-U-G, and then a space, S-C-H-A-I-B-L-E. Uh, just look that up on your favorite podcast, and you'll find it, the Premature Bible Institute. Or just look up, type in my name on YouTube, and you'll find the Premature Bible Institute also. So I'm on audio podcast and on video podcast also on YouTube. So... Just want to say thanks. Good. This was a great lesson for me. Just made me appreciate God even more. Thank you guys for listening to this every week. Talk to you next week. Bye.